Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We're pleased to have the founder and managing partner of Ocean Block Capital, Joe Rusciutti, here with us today. Joe, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Before we get into business, um, give the audience a little sense of your background. So where are you from and how did you get into this industry? Absolutely. I'm from a small town outside of Boston called Norwell. has about 11,000 people. And I guess the, the short story, I, I completely fell into commercial real estate. And the longer story is I was a sophomore at Hamilton College in upstate New York. And I was looking for an internship sophomore year going into uh, my junior year. And I reached out to my next door neighbor who was a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch in Boston. And I had a tremendous experience uh, interning with him that summer. And at the end of the summer, I asked him, if you were going to do something differently with your career, what would you do and why? Mm -hmm. And he said, I would explore commercial real estate. So I did some, own, some of my own internal research mm -hmm. and got a better understanding on real estate. And the investment type, the fact that you could see, feel, and touch the asset that's generating cash flow. I thought that that was very interesting and attractive. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anybody in real estate. My parents weren't in it. Aunts and uncles, nobody was in it. And I went to my lacrosse coach at Hamilton College. And I said, hey, Coach Barnard, do you happen to know anybody that's in commercial real mm -hmm. estate? He made an introduction to an alum, which led to an internship at Marcus and Millichap which led to a full-time gig at Marcus and Millichap when I graduated, and the rest uh, is history. Got it. Great. And yeah. what do you think you'd be doing career-wise if not commercial real estate? I think I'd probably be doing wealth management, Okay. but uh, I would take commercial real estate over 10 anything. times over 10. I absolutely love commercial real estate. So. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And so you spent two years as a broker at Marcus and Millichap. Um, how did investment sales brokerage prepare you for your career today? Would you say that the skill set of being a broker and the skill set of being an investment manager are fairly similar? Very similar and a lot of parallels. So I'd say what brokerage really prepared me for the principal side, I'd say the two traits. Number one would be urgency. So when you're a broker, you're either on a draw or it's eat what you kill. And for me, it was an eat what you kill situation. Right. I wasn't on a draw. So I had my back against the wall and pretty hard to uh, live in New York City without making any money, right? right? So it really created this high degree of urgency. I need to get deals done because I need to get paid so that I can actually live, live in yeah. the city, right? And the, uh, the value that I could provide to people was that I was willing to turn around broker opinion of values, BOVs, within 24 hours. If somebody got me information, it, it was my commitment that oh, I was wow. going to turn it around to people within 24 hours. And I think that that separated me against my, my competitors right. right across the country. And in many respects, that's, that's similar to what I do today on the principal side. I make commitments to other brokers or to principals that own real estate. Get me the information and I will provide you with an offer in 24 hours. No question about it. So urgency, I think is number one, but also number two would be attention to detail. Mm. So when I was a broker, again, I was, I was young and I was also inexperienced. And so what I did was I, I got so laser focused on rent comps, sale comps, permits that were pulled in a given market. I mean, you name it, I knew absolutely everything. And if somebody was going to give me the information for their property, I was going to be a master on that mm. property. So I just got so 
so detail oriented and focused on uh, on information that that trait also has translated to being a principal, right? We're, we're able to make some serious, serious, uh, I, I should say that we've made six and even seven figures in some instances because brokers have missed information mm -hmm. and that attention to detail and just being laser focused on, hey, how does this rent compare to the market? Or is there some verbiage within the lease that that they missed, right? That attention to Got detail it. has been everything. Okay, understood. And as far as um, moving on deals quickly, how do you, do you kind of have a system in place so that you avoid mistakes in um, your acquisitions? Oh, completely, yeah. So it's a, it's a checks and balance system. We have a full-blown team and our team is going through leases. We're going through rent comps. We're going through the sales comps. We're understanding foot traffic. If we're looking at, a say, a Burger King site, we know how right. the foot traffic compares at one site versus another site in the market and how it stacks up with every set across the country. Got it. So we're getting anywhere from three to four eyes on every single property before we offer. Great. Awesome. And um, could you describe to the audience what your company, Ocean Block Capital, is and what you kind of focus on? Yeah. So we are a real estate development and acquisition company based in New York City, and we own net lease, retail, industrial, and medical office assets from New York to California and just about every state in between. Awesome. And what we really specialize in is build the suits, reverse build the suits, sale leasebacks, and the acquisition of existing leased assets. Great. Awesome. And could you walk us through your initial business plan for Ocean Block Capital? And how has this changed over time? How long before opening Ocean Block Capital did you kind of strategize on your vision and your thesis? So good question. There are two ways to start a business and two ways to really do anything. There are people that dip their toes in the water and then there are people that just cannonball into the water. And I would say that how we started Ocean Block was the, the latter. We okay. completely cannonballed into it. And initially when I was a broker, I was selling, I'd say principles, value add investors, assets, and there was really no intention behind their business plans. And I said, wait a second. I huddled up with my partners, Dan Preet and Zach. And I said, well, uh, and this is at the time, this is in 2017. I said, Hey, there's, there's an opportunity here. I think that we need to Move jump fast. into this and we got to move fast. And so what happened was I left Eminem and at Eminem, I was calling Joe Rusciutti from Marcus and Millichap in New York city. I'll mm -hmm. turn around a broker opinion of value in 24 hours. And within a week I was Joe Rusciutti from ocean block capital oh, in wow. New York city. And I'll turn around an offer on your property in 24 hours. So we didn't necessarily have metrics. We were very, very focused on let's find that first deal. Let's get that first deal. And once we got one, one turned to three, got turned it. to five. Now we have a quarter billion dollar portfolio of Great. And for, real estate. And for that first deal, how did you kind of put together the capital stack? So we, the four of us, we took the equity that we had and we threw it at the deal. Okay. We partnered with a, a Wendy's operator that needed to renovate the restaurant. And so we found a lender that believed in us and believed in our vision and the asset. And so we threw our own equity into the deal awesome. and we eventually ended up selling that asset and we rolled 
the proceeds into another asset. Exactly. So our entire business, um, I mean, we've been able to expand at the rate that we have uh, in large part because of refinances and through 1031 exchanges. Great. Awesome. Um, And I think many people outside of real estate have kind of misconceptions about um, what net lease properties even are. So could you briefly describe exactly what is a net lease property and what does this mean for investors? Yeah. So I'll break it down and we'll talk about what a net lease property is and the, we'll talk about the inverse, which mm-hmm. is effectively a, a property that's on a gross lease. So a net lease property, that's when the tenant, not the landlord, the tenant takes care of the insurance, the taxes, and the maintenance associated with the property. And the landlord quite literally goes out to their mailbox and collects rent. It has the reputation of being mailbox right. money. And so it's a it, it's a beautiful lease structure for landlords and for tenants, they don't necessarily love it, but it, it is what it is. So with, let's say, gross leases, if you're in New York City and we're in Soho right now, in Soho, let's say that there's a six-unit multifamily building, the landlord, not the tenant, the landlord is responsible for the taxes, the for property everything. and liability insurance, and any maintenance associated with the property. Right. So let's say that you, John, live in one of the units and God forbid your toilet explodes, right. which would be miserable. You wouldn't go fix the toilet, right? You'd call your landlord or you'd call the super who right. is affiliated with the landlord and that landlord would have to take care of the toilet, right? So for us, we are based in New York City and we have the ability to own assets in Louisiana and Texas and Idaho mm. even because the tenants are taking care of the insurance taxes and maintenance. Got it. Awesome. And are there any advantages to tenants kind of going into leases like this where they can expect, um, where they can kind of control the price increments increments in which the rent increases? Yeah, I'd say that the advantage for a tenant to, let's say uh, the advantage to a tenant signing a triple, triple net, net lease is because they can control every aspect. So let's say that there's an, a 95-year-old landlord and all of a sudden they, they're not paying the real estate taxes, right? Then the, the city can then perhaps shut down the business. Right. Now, 7-Eleven doesn't want to have to deal with that, right? They'd rather just pay the taxes and they can continue to operate their business. So their biggest thing here is it's they want to be able to operate the business without any disruptions. Got and it. that managing the process means they can continue to operate the business. Got it. And in terms of your question with respect to rental increases, I mean, especially with inflation, it's market to have rental increases. So no tenant wants to have rental increases, but that's market. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And and what kind of um, tenants, what kind of businesses would prefer a triple net lease? I mean, I would say anything from quick service restaurants to automotive service stations to automotive retailers. Mm-hmm. I mean, even big box retailers, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, they are all on net leases. Got it. Okay. And as far as uh, medical offices, are you kind of seeing a resurgence and an increase in interest from them? Big time. Yeah. I would say that urgent care operators, dental practices, dialysis clinics, those are all, I mean, those are necessity based, right? Some some people, especially people that need to get hemodialysis that are getting dialysis three times a week, they have to do it. Otherwise their health is at risk and they could potentially die, right? right? So they have to. So they can't afford that interruption. They kind of have to control everything. They have, they have to, to control everything. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Very well said. 
So the three transaction types that you work on are existing leases, sale leasebacks, and build to suit. Um, to someone currently in high school or college, um, how would you break down what each of these are and how does it affect your risk profile to invest in each of these? Okay. So let's talk about, I'll, I'll use a tenant example. So we'll say Wendy's. So for an existing lease, let's say that Wendy's is operating out in Long Island, right? And you are the landlord, right? You're the landlord and somebody else is operating the business, mm. a franchisee. I could then approach you and say, hey, John, I'm interested in buying your Wendy's. Do you have any interest in hearing an offer? Right? So that's, I'd, I'd be it. working directly with you. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. And notice how in that relationship, the Wendy's operator does not own the real estate. They just operate the business. Right. So they're separate. Right. So that's scenario one. Scenario two is sale leasebacks. Sale leasebacks is when you, John, own the business and you own the real estate. Mm -hmm. And I would then approach you and say, hey, John, I'm interested in buying your real estate. And you say to me, I'm actually interested in selling you that real estate, but, and, but I want to keep the business and continue to operate it. And I'm going to take that capital right. and I'm going to go open two more locations out in Long Island. Mm -hmm. So we see that all the time. And you you especially see that happen in, in a rising rate environment because the cost of debt is so high. Right. And in the last situation, I think you you said build the suits. Yeah, build the suits. So build the suits that same scenario where, where you say, yeah, I want to go build more locations. I would approach you, John, the franchisee of Wendy's in Long Island. And I'd say, Hey, John, I will help you build a site. You tell me where you want to be and let's make it happen. Right. And so I would build it for you and I would own the real estate and you would be my tenant. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, before that you work with lenders, but you don't take any outside equity. Correct. Um, this is very interesting. So walk us through your capital stack and, and why do you avoid sort of a GPLP structure? So yeah, there's no GPLP structure and it, it wasn't necessarily by design. We've just never had to raise any, raise any equity, right? We started with a, a dollar and a dream and we never needed to go elsewhere for equity, Great. right? Just because we were refinancing or we were doing 1031 exchanges. So we have strategic debt partners all across the country that range from large banks to small credit unions and just about everything in between there. And I'd say we're running with, again, I'll call it 10 of them mm. where we could pick up the phone and say, Hey, we have an opportunity and they're and really excited about it because we have a track record. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and the way you build that relationship um, was through certainty of execution um, and quick closing. Yeah. I'd say that specifically in real estate or anything that you do, it's all track record, right? right? So the hardest deal is always going to be the first deal right. because you don't necessarily have a track record, but you do it once and it could be construed as lucky. You do it twice. Okay. They, they're whatever, they made it happen. When you do it five, 10, 20, 50 times. And in our situation right. now we're at 150 times, we're, we're More past the, the luck, right? right? There's, there's something here and there's a lot more trust involved in it. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Um, and at what point in the market life cycle do you think that net lease properties are? So I would say that if you were to look at it in a, and people love this example, like, is it the first inning? Is it the ninth inning? I think that right now we're in the third inning. I think that it's gained a tremendous amount of popularity mm -hmm. since call it 2012, right after 
the great financial crisis, but you're going to continue to see the popularity increase because we're in a rising rate environment. Right. So you're going to see more sale leasebacks. And when you see more sale leasebacks, that's when more tenants become aware. That's when more uh, investors become aware. So I think that we are in early inning baseball for the net lease space. Got it. Okay, that's good. Um, and when you're evaluating a potential net lease property um, for acquisition or development, what are the key factors that you kind of pay close attention to? What's the um, checklist? There's so many and every deal is so incredibly different. Okay. But I say to my acquisition team, whenever we're looking at an opportunity, first and foremost, it's intrinsic fundamental real estate. How is the site? What are the, the traffic counts? What, what are the one, three and five mile? What's the one, three and five mile population? What's the one, three and five mile median household mm, incomes? Income. Is it, is the population rising? Is it receding? So there are states that we love two of which being Florida and Texas, we'll go figure you have the exodus of people from New York, New York and to Massachusetts Florida. to Florida yeah. and California to Texas. So when the population migrates, That's the retail, industrial, and medical office also improves. Got it. Okay. So. Um, and assessing the credit, credit worthiness of your tenants um, in, these, in that lease properties, I'm sure is very vital for long-term success. Um, how do you go about evaluating tenant credit worthiness and why is it so important? So, so important. And I think that the, the, some of the biggest learning lessons came from COVID. So during COVID, all of the essential retailers and the COVID resistant retailers or medical office tenants or industrial tenants, those were the tenants that paid rent, right? right? So we have serious sensitivity to credit. We love credit. And how do we evaluate credit? I mean, there are 10 Ks that we're going through, right? right? So if you're 7-Eleven or CBS or Walgreens, those are all publicly traded and they have 10 Ks that we're reviewing and we're we're constantly looking at 10 Qs, 10 Ks. Mm. We're seeing, we have visibility to all of the economics. But then if we're taking a run at, say, a franchisee restaurant, let's use the Wendy's example again, we're digging into balance sheets, we're digging into profit and loss statements, and we're evaluating not just this past year's profit and loss statements and balance sheets, we're taking a look at the past five years. Mm -hmm. We want to understand the track record and really understand the story. Right. Because again, real estate, specifically net lease real estate, is a partnership with the tenant. It's it's a symbiotic relationship for us. So that's, uh, it, I mean, credit is so, so important and understanding the credit worthiness of your tenant if you're going to invest in net lease real estate is paramount. Got it. Okay. Um, and how do you spot potential growth opportunities in the net lease market? and um, align them with your investment goals. Are there any specific strategies that you employ? Yeah, I would say that, and we, we were talking about following the population. Right. We are in the classic saying by Wayne Gretzky is you want to skate to where the puck is going, right. not to where it is. And so we are trying to get ahead of the curve with respect to, hey, where's the population going? But we're also trying to get ahead of the curve with respect to retailers that are transforming their space. So one retailer that's really, really focused on drive-throughs is Starbucks. Mm. So if we're going to enter a high growth market, we want to make sure, okay, if we're going to partner with Starbucks, it needs to have a drive-through right. because these guys are not going to open locations with no drive-through. Right. So I mean, we're, we're very, very focused 
both on the market and just getting to where the puck is going there. And where then the also flows. partnering with retailers and understanding what it is that they're looking for because we're in a transformative phase in the brick and mortar space Got for it. retail. Okay. Um, and I'd imagine that developing net lease properties often comes with its own set of challenges and risks. Um, could you shed some light on these challenges and how do you how do you mitigate them? Yeah, so I'll tell you guys a story and it was a painful story, but also an incredible learning lesson. So we bought a property in Thousand Oaks, California, and it was an Arby's and it didn't have a drive-thru, speaking of mm. drive-thrus. And we partnered with the operator to incorporate a drive-thru. And we were working with Thousand Oaks and Thousand Oaks said, yeah, drive-thru is possible. The franchisee said, yep, we're completely on board. So we put together a site plan. We're working with Thousand Oaks. They said, make a few of these revisions. We made a few revi revisions and we went back to them and they said, okay, make a few more revisions. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm getting pressure from the seller to close. Right. And uh, so we ended up closing without the formal approval from Thousand Oaks and Thousand Oaks came back a few weeks later and they said, yeah, no drive through here. We're very focused on pedestrian friendly Thousand Oaks drive through is never going to happen. So the learning lesson there is you got to make sure that you have your T's crossed and I's dotted before you, you Start close. Now, for, fortunately we got out of it. We sold it to an owner operator and it was a win-win for both sides mm -hmm. and we got out unscathed, but uh, that was a, a major learning lesson for us. Got it. Okay. Walk us through a deal that kind of went way beyond your expectations. Um, what did you do right and how much of it comes down to timing? Oh, man. There are a few. So I will talk about a deal that we did in North Carolina. And so once upon a time, it was COVID and the entire market was frantic. And we were working on go figure another Wendy's property. We've done a lot of, a lot of Wendy's deals. And one of the largest franchisees filed for bankruptcy. Mm. And the landlord was somebody from California that just had no appetite for dealing with it and dealing with the bankruptcy and trying to fight to get rent paid. So she said, I'm going to sell it. So we took a massive risk and we bought a Wendy's site that had a tenant that was bankrupt. So most people would say that's completely berserk, but we cross our T's and dot our I's with just about everything. Mm. And we knew that this was a two and a half million dollar revenue Wendy's and average Wendy's does one eight. The likelihood that Wendy's Wendy's corporate is going to let this site shut down is very, very, very low. So we bought the site and sure enough, a another Wendy's franchisee picked up the business. And so we immediately got a credit upgrade, right? We went from a bankrupt tenant to all of a sudden a, tenant that could pay rent. Right. So we were thrilled. And then I received an unsolicited offer that, I mean, I was underwriting the asset to whatever, call it a five and a half cap back in COVID. And I got offered a four and a half cap mm. and that completely blew me away. So every now and then timing is lucky, but I think you get lucky from really crossing your T's and dotting your I's in okay. the due diligence process. Got it. Understood. And do you do you kind of have a tendency to look for these kind of hairy deals that have a um, surface level problem that you want to go in there and solve? That's kind of your profit margin? Of course. Yeah. I'd say that 
there are no easy deals. I wish that deals were super easy and we can get them done with our uh, with our eyes closed, but I feel as though every single deal has its hair, whether it's an environmental blemish right. or there's a title issue or there's some weird clause within a lease that gets everybody uncomfortable. Uh, my job, I, I almost feel is at, at times I'm the garbage man. Mm. Uh, I, I'm dealing with taking out the trash and and sifting through a lot of garbage to find a, a treasure opportunity and clean it up. Okay, understood. And can you walk us through a deal where kind of you thought it was going to be a layup and you were kind of smacked in the face because of the market or the timing? Um, and what would you have done differently? Yeah, I would say I'd probably give you that Thousand Oaks opportunity. But I've had I've had a few opportunities where you get caught in in a weird point in the market. So I had an opportunity, I'd say it was in the middle of Q2 of 2022. And the Fed since then has risen rates right. by 500 basis points. But we closed on an asset and we still own the asset and it's fine and we're, we're doing just fine on it. But we closed on a medical office asset and we closed on it. And then immediately the Fed just started raising rates in a very, mm. very serious way, which everybody observed. And I would say that now, when I when I was underwriting it, I was underwriting it what I thought was conservatively. Well, that conservative is now an aggressive in this market. So I have to wait for the next market cycle to do something with the asset. So I'd say you face challenges like that every now and then, but our our fundamental at Ocean Block, or our fundamentals, I should say, our bread and butter is conservative underwriting. So we try and avoid those situations at all cost. Okay, got it. And as far as the the interest rate landscape, how do you kind of see that changing over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? So I think that we are settling into the new norm right now, and it'll definitely be like that for the rest of 2023 mm. and into 2024. I think that the new norm is going to be call it six and a half to seven percent rate okay. which isn't great for anybody especially yeah. when we were talking about 2.75 to three and a quarter in 2021 which was magical and yeah. it was incredible i would say that in 2025 and i'm not a genie in a bottle here but i think in 2025 that's when rates will start to be okay. pulled back a little bit and at that point then you'll start to see a little bit more market activity. We're still incredibly active mm. buying, but generally speaking, velocity is down because rates are so high right now. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And how can somebody kind of take advantage of these high interest rates? Somebody, let's say this is sitting on the sidelines right now with cash. Um, should they just go in there and just buy the whole thing out cash and kind of get a lower price on it? Or how, how can they go about it? Yeah, I'd say buying assets cash. That's one of our value propositions right. at Ocean Block. We'll come in and buy cash so that there's no financing contingencies. Right. And people are thrilled about that because they know that we're going to close if we're coming in cash yeah. and we're not dealing with financing contingencies. Uh, but I would say that in terms of buying assets in a down market, you have to be focused on the right deals, but you really have to be focused on the right sellers. So mm. what I mean by that is they have debt that's maturing mm. and that's coming due and they have one of two decisions. They can either refinance and they're likely going to have to come out of pocket to do so, 
or they're going to have to sell. So, now, not everybody has the leg, the luxury of coming out of pocket to refinance an asset. So some people have to sell. Right. And those people that have to sell, that's who you want to be buying from. So if I had cash on the sidelines, which we do, mm -hmm. we're waiting and not waiting. We're actively buying Looking assets right, right now, seller. but we're very focused on distressed opportunities with debt coming due. And we're already starting to see that, which is beautiful. Awesome. And um, how do you kind of set yourself apart with these sellers or brokers like Glenn Konofsky um, so that they call you first when, the, when a good deal comes across their desk? Yeah, I'd say three ways. So number one, they're monetarily incentivized to bring deals to us. And let's say that somebody on Glenn Konofsky's team has a deal. If they bring it to us, they we're not going to have a broker get in the way of them and their fee. Right. So let's say it's a $2 million deal and it's a 4% commission. So whatever, it's 80 grand. If somebody from their team brings Ocean Block a deal and we buy the deal, then it's an 80K commission to them. We're not, again, no broker's going to get in right. between yeah. them and their fee. So that's number one, monetar monetarily incentivized. I would say that number two is we're going to come in cash, right? So there's no financing contingency and contingencies and we're going to get the deal done quick closing. and yeah very very quick like I'm, I'm talking lightning speed 30 to 45 days oh, wow. so that would be number two and then number three is we're going to manage the process from point a to point z okay. and it's going to be a white glove experience so as soon as we have an executed letter of intent our attorney time our attorney team will draft the purchase and sale agreement as soon as the purchase and sale agreement is drafted our Asset manager Michael Kiriak, who's a complete rock star, by the way. His nickname in our office is David Blaine, oh, wow. the magician. Okay. He's so good. <laughs> He'll order property condition report, phase one environmental Great. survey, zoning report. He orders everything within 15 minutes, and we're on the ground running. And then once we waive contingencies, our attorney team will even draft closing documents. Oh, so wow. we make it Super such easy. a beautiful experience for brokers. And that's why we do so many deals with brokers, whether it's at Matthews or Marcus and Millichap or CBRE. I mean, SRS, we work mm. with, with everybody. So, Great. Awesome. Yeah. And so what's your long-term vision with um, Ocean Block Capital? Are you looking to continue to do what you're doing or like expand into other verticals? So we have short-term, mid-term and long-term goals. So short-term, we want to close 50 assets by the end of 2023 okay. and we're well on our way and we're going to have a monster Q3 and Q4 and we're thrilled about it. Midterm is we want to have, I'm going to use the B word here. We want to have a $1 billion portfolio by 1231 of 2025. And long-term we want to be talking about a $10 billion Great. portfolio when it's all said and done. I'm sure that once we get to 10 billion, we're going to want to get to 11 and 12. That's and just hundred. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's how we operate. But right now, I think that there's there's a vast blue ocean in the net lease, retail, in, industrial, and medical office space, and we're laser focused on that for now, today, and whatever June twelfth right. of twenty twenty three. Having said that, we're we're an open minded group, right. and who's to say in a year we're not doing multifamily in right. New York City or self storage or mixed use? Right, we're open-minded to it. But for now, yeah, it's in at least retail, industrial, and medical office. Got it. Understood. 
And um, speaking for somebody who is, let's say they're in college or high school, how can somebody go about finding their niche within commercial real estate? So for me, I started at Marcus and Millichap. So I had exposure to the, let's say the self-storage teams and the mixed use, multifamily and net lease spaces. So I would recommend if you were like me and had no family in the industry whatsoever, and you just wanted to explore and see what it was that you wanted to do, my recommendation would be to start at a JLL or a CBRE or Marcus and Millichap. Mm -hmm. I think brokerage is an incredible way to learn the industry. And I learned so, so much in that in the first 24 months of being in the business, because I got to see developers working with tenants Mm -hmm. and I got to see private equity firms and REITs executing sale leasebacks. And I got to see what value add investors were doing. And I got to see what 1031 Mm -hmm. private investors were doing. So I thought that that was a a, a great learning experience for me. Got it. Okay, great. Um, And if you zoom out and you look at your trends and in in your interests and your skill sets, what's the overall theme that led, led you to this point today? So the overall theme would be the combination of quantitative and qualitative skills. Mm. So that when I first was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I knew that I wanted, I, I was definitely numbers focused when I was a kid and when I was in college, but I, I knew as well that I'm a people person, I'm a deal maker and I need to be communicating, not just behind a desk right. doing Excel, Excel all day, <laughs> right? So. I'd say for me, the combination of both quantitative and qualitative skills has led me to the role that I have today as a as a principal at Ocean Block. Got it. Okay, great. And what do you think you enjoy more nowadays? Is it the is it the people uh, building relationships, or is it the kind of the numbers crunching side of it, or is it kind of fifty fifty? I would say that it's fifty fifty. I love digging into deals. And understanding, hey, what's this? What's this tenant paying for rent? How does this rent compare to market? Understanding the sales comps and digging into the the nitty gritties of leases. I, I'm an enthusiast, mm. and so I really, really love that. But I also love deal making, right? And many of the people that I work with, I consider friends. So I, I work with guys in Michigan, and San Diego, and San Francisco, and Miami, and it's. It's very, very fun, and it brings a lot of joy to my day-to-day. And joy is my GPS, so when I get to do business with my friends, it makes life really, really fun. Great. Awesome. Yeah. And who were your role models and people you kind of looked up to when you were coming up in the industry? So I would say that my personal role models would be, I'd say, my dad. Mm. He has a very high degree of integrity, loyalty, and a relentless work ethic. So he's somebody that I look up to. In terms of the business itself, there's not really anybody that's doing mm. exactly what it is that we're doing in the net lease space. As I mentioned, it, it's it's just a, the, the path less traveled. The only way that I can really explain it and compare it is at times I feel as though myself and my three partners it, were – Lewis and Clark and, and Blue Ocean Strategy. And yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just like the Lewis and Clark show, and we're hacking our way westward, and you never know what animal you're going right. to find or what thorns you're going to find, but we're we're making our way. But I, I will say, in the real estate space, 
Ryan Serhant, he's a, a Hamilton graduate and he's doing incredible things. Mm. He just started his own company a few years ago and he's now national and he's done some just incredible work. Definitely. And I think that he is, I think that his perspective on the digit, he's, he's very focused on digital and doing videos and podcasts like this. And he has created a very, very impressive business. So he's somebody that I, I admire for sure in the real estate space. Got it. Okay. Understood. Yeah. And what would you say makes a good leader and a good principal? A good leader and a good principal. So I would say somebody that's fearless, somebody that's accountable, and somebody that has extraordinary communication skills. So I'll, I'll back you into this. So fearless, when you're fearless, you're willing to, I mean, there's no wall too high. Mm. There's no task too big. And I think where does fearlessness come from? It comes from confidence. And where does confidence come from? It comes from being overly prepared. So mm. the more prepared you are, right. the more confident you are, and the more confident you are, the more fearless you can be. So I think the best leaders are fearless. I also think that the best leaders have just extreme, extreme levels of accountability, both self and team accountability. Right. And this is an ocean block core value. So self-accountability, if you're going to do something, it happens, right? Right. If I say that I'm going to be at a workout class at 5.30 in the morning. Keep your word. It's happening, right? And team accountability, if I know that somebody's running a presentation at 8 a.m. on Friday, I'm not going to let my teammate down. I will be there. Uh, so that's just examples of accountability. And extraordinary communication skills is the last one. Right. Communication is absolutely everything, whether you're communicating with teammates, whether you're communicating with business partners, whether you're communicating with lenders, with people that you're trying to do deals with. I think the best leaders and the best principals are the one that communicate effectively. effectively. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And what do you look for in a new hire for your team? Mm. I look for people that are competitive, persistent, and resilient. And I typically, I typically hire athletes because those guys are, and girls are competitive, right? And they have a track record of right. being competitive and persistent. I, I actually have one of my senior guys, I've never actually told him this story, but he, uh, I interviewed him final round interview and I, I just had a lot going on and I hadn't gotten back to him yet. And he kept calling me and calling me and calling me. And I'm like, you know what? This guy's persistent. persistent. And I ended up hiring him and he's a complete beast. He's an incredible guy and has extreme levels of accountability. Uh, but then also resilience. So I look for people that if they're going to get pushed down, they're going to get back up and they're going to make the next play. And we're offering on 20 properties a week and we have for six years now. Mm right? And 20 offers a week times call it 50 weeks in a year. That's a thousand properties, right? We've offered on 6,000 properties and we've acquired 150 plus of them, right? We're being told no a lot. Right. So I need my guys to be able to get back. Rejection. Yeah. Comfortable with rejection, get back up, make the next play. Got it. And would you say that where the person is, where the candidate is matters less than where they're going? meaning uh, their perspective matters more than their past? I would say that 
I, I like to hire my, my people green and I'm okay. Like I'm okay with them not necessarily having real estate experience right. and getting them ramped up. I'm really looking for the personality. Uh, I'm looking for the, the personality and the, the traits okay. that they have within. Again, I'm looking for somebody that has a track record of being competitive okay. and persistent and resilient and somebody that has shown relentless work ethic or somebody that's overcome adversity and wants to talk about it, right? So I'll use an example of somebody got an injury in sports. Like how did they handle that, right? right. Did they sulk about it or did they keep work fighting. and rehab and keep fighting and get back to health and get back in, in the game, right. right? So that's what I typically okay. look for. Great. Um, and what have you learned about yourself since you've closed your first deal? I have learned that you can never rest on your laurels. Not that I ever have, mm. but you close a deal. There are two kinds of people, whether it's brokerage, which I observed in my brokerage career, or whether it's from the principal side, there are people that will close a deal and they celebrate. celebrate and they take their foot off the gas. They've made some money. Congratulations. Or there are people that are focused on the next deal. Right. And the next opportunity. And I think Tom Brady says it best. People say, oh, how does this ring compared to the last ones? And what do you think is the, the best ring ever? And he always says, the best ring is the, the next, next one. one, right? So I'd say that since my first deal, I've always been focused on never resting on my laurels mm -hmm. and always pushing forward no matter what. It's awesome. important to celebrate the wins, right? And, and I certainly do so. But after pushing. you celebrate, back to work. Got it. Okay. And what idea do you believe about um, an asset class or a submarket that many people you respect disagree with you on? Banks. So I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for banks, right? We're in a transformative phase in the brick and mortar right. space for banks. And everybody is now doing mobile banking and online banking. But the hidden gem with banks, not necessarily in New York City, but across the country, is they have drive-throughs, right? And there's some value to that. And with rising costs of construction, whether it's labor, so soft costs or hard costs, lumber, copper, steel, many of these tenants are focused on second-gen space, and there's serious opportunity in banks. And that's something that we are actively pursuing across the country. Got it. Okay. And as far as when you want to um, go big on an opportunity, is it based on intuition or is it based on facts? Facts, right? I would say that uh, intuition could be construed as guessing. And if you're guessing, you might as well go to Las Vegas. Let's go to the, let's Campbell, go to Encore yeah. or the Win and throw some money down on roulette, right? right? That's not what we're doing here, and that's not how we've gotten to where we've gotten need to be laser, laser focused on the, the empirical data points, meaning I'll go really, really big on an opportunity if I know that it's paying a third of market rent it. and it's on an incredible trade corridor with 40,000 vehicles per day and it's a one acre lot size. And I know that I have three other tenants that I could backfill the space mm. with immediately. So those are the opportunities that I'll go all in on. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and who do you learn from at this point in your career? I'm learning every day. 
But uh, I would say I listen to more self-help podcasts than just about anybody that I know. Okay. So I listen to Ed Milet, Tony Robbins, Jay Shetty. I do a lot of reading as well. So Tim Grover, he was Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's Relentless. coach. And, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, winning too. That, one, yeah. that one's really, really good. You read it? No, I didn't read the oh, I'll no, check it it's out. It's so, so good. And uh, I, I've read both of Brian Serhan's books. Okay. He's great. And so I, I'm certainly learning from people that are at the top of the game mm. at whatever they do. Danny Myers, another good one. He's a restaurateur based in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I think that what he's done with Union Square Cafe and Chisiamo and Gramercy Tavern is is just so impressive. So I learn from people that are at the absolute top of their game at what Got they it. do, and I try and implement it to my own game and to Ocean Block and to our culture. And I'm also learning from my teammates, whether it's my partners, whether it's my, my team back at 777 3rd Ave., I'm learning from those guys. I'm learning from tenants on the phone right. and in person. I'm looking. I'm learning from brokers, both investment sales brokers and leasing brokers. So I try my best to learn right, at right least along. one thing every single day. Awesome. Great. And what drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, philanthropy? And when would you say you've kind of succeeded and you can now retire? So I would say that all of the above drive me. And I would say that I feel as though I'm in, I'm still in the, maybe the bottom of the first inning of, of my career. Mm. And I have so many goals personally, professionally, athletically, and I, I can't necessarily quantify exactly when I will determine, oh, I've made it. I, I'm definitely celebrating moments and really enjoying the journey. I think one incredible book, if you're a big book guy, uh, you got to read The Alchemist by okay. Paolo yeah. Coelho. Yeah. And the, the general premise of the book is the journey is the treasure. So I'm really trying my best to enjoy, enjoy absolutely every single day right. and beautiful moments in every day, whether it's pain from a deal or a tough workout or extreme joy from seeing one of my acquisition guys close their first deal, right. right? I'm just enjoying the journey. I'd say that, ask me that question in five years. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'm just getting started and I have a long way to go. Perfect. Awesome. And I have my final question to wrap this up, Joe. What advice would you give your 23-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? So I... Repeat that question for me. What advice would you give your 23-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? I would go, if I could have a conversation with my 22, 23-year-old self, I would say to him to say no to people, places, and projects that drain you Mm. of your energy rather than give you energy. So I think that in all of our lives, right, we are getting pulled in different directions to do all these different activities or projects or hanging out with different people, right, going out to to get drinks on a random Wednesday night. And not that I do that or have been doing that a lot over my career, 
But I think that staying really, really focused on the mission and the goals that I set out for myself, that's really, 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 really important. So it would be to say no unapologetically mm. to people, places, and projects that drain you and take away your energy rather than give you energy. Got it. Okay. Joe, thanks again. Really yep. appreciate this. You're the man. Thank sure. you.